This week has been another crazy week, and I'm pedal to the metal, so sorry for any production shortcomings. Most of the time for these podcasts is actually taken up with post-recording editing, getting rid of missed words, correcting noises that showed up in the background, whatever it happens to be. I'm going to skip that entirely this, entirely this week. Just as an example, I'm going to leave that in. That said, I've had some very positive feedback on this series, so I'm going to try and keep it going. Let's open with the offerings to attain atonement on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. To begin to understand the rituals, we have to look at the concept of atonement itself. The first use of the word kaper isn't about sin at all. Instead, it refers to the pitch used by Noah to protect his ark. Kaper here is both a sealant and an act of sealant. Sealing. This idea of kaper as a sealant extends. We give a half shekel as a kaper before the census. It seals us from the dangers of being held up before God. The Aaron has a kaper with kruvim, or angels, on it. These angels were last seen closing off access to the Garden of Eden. They seal the Aaron and the Ten Commandments from intrusion. They enable them to be timeless. The offerings don't only kaper the people, they kaper the altar, the mishkan, and the Holy of Holies itself. Why would the altar and the Holy of Holies need atonement? They don't, but they need to be sealed against spiritual corrosion. When a man commits manslaughter, the family of the deceased can ask for a kaper. It is a payment to seal him against their vengeance. Finally, when Moshe does kaper for the people after the sin of the calf, he doesn't wipe away or cover up the sin. He just, forever, prevents it from overwhelming the people. So we have this idea of kaper as a spiritual sealant. It is often associated with a particular kind of sin, chata. What is chata? Well, when Yosef's brothers beg him not to retaliate after Yosef dies, they define chata as doing evil. Where good is an act of creation, chata is an act of destruction. But chata is more than an act. It also represents a destructive impulse. The first use of the word chata is in regard to Cain. The text says, by the opening, chata is expectantly waiting and it desires you. Chata has personification. It has desires. When you sin, you are serving it. This will have interesting parallels when we get to Azazel. So how does Chata strike? Well, it is waiting by the opening. Chata enters when it gets the chance. When we kaper against Chata, we seal the opening so that the sin cannot enter. And if sin does enter, then it is transformed to something else, Avon. This is also translated as sin, but is regularly associated with another word. It is a sin you have to bear. It is the weight that holds you down. The phrase, bear your iniquity, is related to Avon, not Chata itself. The act of Kaper protects us from the spiritual weight of Avon. We see this in the case of Cain. He, he sins and then he says, I cannot bear the weight of the Avon. So how does the act of Kaper protect us from the spiritual weight of Avon? We have a few steps. The most prominent involves Azazel. With the ritual of Azazel, there are two goats, Se'irim. In many places, goats represent the people, but they also represent the physical. Se'ir means hairy, and it's associated with Esav. One goat is offered to God. It's a kaper to Yudke Vavke, the name of God that incorporates the past, present, and future. It seals the people against spiritual corrosion and becomes a part of the timeless through its sacrifice. It's korban, literally drawing close. By dedicating the physical to the timeless, we become a part of it. The other Seir is given its own kaper. It is stood before God, sealing it against the corrosion of the people's sins. Then the people's sins of Anot are placed on it, and it is sent to Azazel. Azazel literally means goat of disappearance. The word Azel can be translated as disappearance or being used up. 
This goat is sent to emptiness and non-existence. The message for me is that if we dedicate our lives to emptiness, then we simply cease to exist. This contrast is, is an object lesson for us. We all die, but we can either dedicate our potential to God and be part of the timeless, or we can dedicate ourselves to nothing with a capital N and vanish as if we never existed. As part of this ritual, the Kohen Gadol approaches the Kadosh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies. He takes fiery coals and incense and creates a cloud of incense around the Aron so that he doesn't die. A few people at last week's Shabbat Shior pointed out that workmen can enter the Kadosh Kadoshim without incense and they don't die. This cloud is only necessary during a time of judgment. If we back, go back to our Mishkan design class, the three articles represent the three appearances of Hashem. The menorah is the burning bush and represents God's unique ability to create without destruction. The shulchan is the revelation of the mana and represents Hashem's faithfulness to us. And the Aaron holds the Ten Commandments and represents the revelation of Harsinai and Hashem's law. When you are facing judgment and you stand before the representation of law, there is a great deal to fear. How do you counteract the strict reality of law? Well, smell is associated with emotion. Smells can bring us back decades and restore old feelings. Smells have a powerful and underappreciated emotional impact on us. We barely understand it. The shorsh for smell is reach or ruach. It means both smell and spirit. When you create a cloud of incense of the Aron, you are clouding judgment, harsh judgment, with emotion. I rarely play the kind of particular word game I'm about to play, but the word for mercy is rachem. This shows up in all sorts of contexts. One of the most relevant is that when the firstborn are called, is when firstborn are called, peter rechem, the release of kindness. Rechem is a single three-letter root, but we could see it as two roots brought together. Ruach or reach, either spirit or smell, and chayim, for life. When Hashem releases kindness, He is granting the spirit of life. And when God acts with mercy on the day of judgment, He is granting the spirit of life. The Torah reading doesn't end with Azazel, of course. It is fast, followed by a vast can canvas of commandments. The first is that if we are in the camp, if we are close to the Mishkan, we must bring our offerings there. If we kill an animal and don't bring it, then it is akin to murder. This sets the tone for the rest of the reading. We had an opportunity for an animal to be used for the highest of purposes, and we neglected it. Likewise, when we are close to God, we have an opportunity to use our lives for the highest of purposes, and we cannot neglect it. The same command is not to offer, the second command is not to offer our sacrifices to demons. But the word used for demons is se'irim, it is the same word used for goats that we offered to God and to Azazel. We don't offer our animals to simply physical purposes. Again, we do not waste our opportunities. The third command is about blood. It has a purpose to provide atonement for our physical souls. Eating it, making it a part of our physical selves, is a destructive act. We lower it by eating it. We destroy instead of lifting up. And the fourth command is about eating a torn or dead bird. Here we have only an association with loss and destruction. If we commit this sin, we have to be spiritually cleansed. If we aren't, then we carry this iniquity. The fifth set of commands goes one step further. They concern uncovering the ervat of those close to us. Ervat is often translated as simple nakedness. But there is another, more revealing understanding. 
When Yosef's brothers come to the land, he accuses them of being spies and seeking out the ervat of the land. They aren't seeking its nakedness. They are seeking its weakness. To be naked is to be exposed, to have your physical flaws and your limits revealed. We can uncover nakedness, but not the nakedness of those close to us. When we reveal their weaknesses, we reveal our own. It contaminates us by making us aware of our own limits. There's a process here. When we are close to God, we don't neglect our opportunities. We don't waste spiritual potential. We distance ourselves from loss and destruction. And we even conceal our own weakness, even from ourselves. The focus is on a positive energy and a positive presentation. The Kohanim cover up their weakness to approach Hashem. In the presence of the Mishkan, in a less direct way, we do the same. We imitate God. Parsha Kedoshim carries this idea further into the realm of holiness itself. We are to be holy because Hashem is holy. Holiness is a kind of timelessness that Yud gave Vavke, the timeless God, distinction from Azazel, extinction and, and, and vanishing as if we never existed. To achieve the timelessness of holiness, we have to overcome the deleterious effects of time. We spit in the face of these effects. We make believe as if they don't exist. God is timeless, and so we imitate him. Parsha Kedoshim just thus starts with the commandments not to let sacrificial meat begin to rot and to leave gleanings for the poor so they don't starve with time. We don't let time affect our spiritual or physical reality. These two commandments set the tone, but they aren't the end of the reading. It continues with commands that are meant to stop that natural rot from permeating other aspects of our lives. First is society. We don't cheat, leave stumbling block for the blind, pervert justice, gossip, or bear grudges. This is the broadest sort of protection against, of social protection against rot. Second is nature. Even though crossbreeding will naturally occur, we don't hasten it. This isn't rot per se, but it is natural change. We don't accelerate natural change. We have kadosh and chol. Chol is, is change. It, it happens. We have it for six days a week, but we don't accelerate it. We separate it from kadosh. Third is marriage. The case chosen here is unusual. If a man sleeps with a slave woman who is engaged with a man, she can't be held responsible because she isn't free. But he isn't deeply condemned either. He has to bring an offering for Kaper, a fear of God offering. An offering of a ram. From Parshat Mishpatim, there is a suggestion that the woman is sold by her father with marriage being the point. If she is not married to the buyer, to his son, or if the buyer fails to provide for her, then she is freed. The slaveholder is not allowed to sell her to another man. So how can she be engaged to another man? She must have gotten engaged independently of the buyer or her father. So the law respects that she is not in control when it comes to her owner. But she is in control in another respect. The slaveholder would normally have the right to marry her, but she has cut that off. Her self-designation trumps the actions of her father and the buyer. The idea of a slave woman being sold for marriage is a deeply, deeply disturbing idea. This little section seems to be suggesting that while there was this terrible idea of slave women being sold by their fathers for marriage, the woman is not entirely powerless. If she were, you'd end up with exactly the sort of rot we're protecting against. You'd end up with entirely powerless women, fundamentally broken families, and deep bitterness running through the society. Families are the building blocks of a people. There are limits to how much misfortune can end up defining them. What about the man? 
He isn't condemned to die either. In theory, he bought a wife from a willing father. In that society, he had certain rights. He isn't allowed to sleep with a woman, but the punishment for doing so is limited. The fear of God, represented by the offering of a ram, serves to remind him that his rights are in fact trumped by more important realities. Of course, the woman does end up having had likely unwilling relations with a man who owns her. At least for a time. She ends up possibly having been raped. She is innocent of any crime, but a ram offering by her attacker probably offers little in the way of solace. Nonetheless, in the case of these cross-realities, we don't let either reality, either legal reality, that of the purchaser or that of the woman who engages herself with someone else, destroy things. We put a cap on both. Nobody is put to death. And all parties, eventually, although perhaps with a great deal of pain, have a way out. The fourth area of protection against natural rot concerns our relationship with God. It starts modestly, with the concept that we can't eat forbidden fruit for three years. We then give the fourth year's produce as praise to Hashem. As we see throughout Chumash, trees are a gift from Hashem. If we treat that gift like a crop, we might imagine that it is our own work product. By not eating for three years, we separate our planting from our harvesting. And by designating the fourth year's produce as Hallel to Hashem, we further emphasize that the tree is a divine gift. We are protecting our recognition of God's gifts. Fifth, the fifth area in which we protect against rot is ourselves. A fundamental part of our relationship with God is not letting ourselves become connected to loss, emptiness, or destruction. This is why we don't practice various sorts of sorcery or damage ourselves to remember the dead. This is why we can't undermine our daughters by turning them into prostitutes, forget Shabbat, worship either tradition of or knowledge Yidoni, disrespect the old or the convert, pervert measurements, and confuse what God wants by sacrificing the future to the perversion of him known as Malach. We don't let ourselves become connected to loss, emptiness, or destruction personally. This emphasis on ourselves continues. There is a reminder to sanctify ourselves and thus be sanctified because the timeless God, represented by yud Vavke, is our higher power, represented by Elohim. It is in this personal vein that we get into the most controversial part of the readings. It starts with a prohibition on cursing our parents. This sort of curse separates us from the past and rots of society, but then we are forbidden from various types of sexual relationships. Before we get into this section, I want a little context. In modern times, we put heavy focus on the concept of love. But that concept is not the core concern of the Chumash. In the Chumash, love is a mixed bag. If you have love of Hashem, or Hashem loves you, that is all good. But love between people is uh, something else. The first example of love is that Avram loves Yitzchak, his son. Through the Akedah, he is driven to show that his fear of God trumps his love of his own son. Yitzchak loves Rivka and Esav, but those relationships are focused on the physical and are clearly imperfect. Finally, Shechem loves Dina. Whatever our position on the actions of Yaakov's sons, this love is not honored in the Torah. What is love in the Chumash? Again and again it is associated with listening to another and desiring to draw close. Shechem's nefesh was drawn to Dina and he loved her. We are told, To love your God, Hashem, to listen to his voice and to cling to him. These three concepts are intertwined again and again. 
This is why love of your fellow is so dangerous. Instead of listening to God, instead of being drawn to God, you are drawn elsewhere and you listen to other influences. Love comes up in this reading. You shall love your fellow like yourself. This is read as an almost limitless thing, and it would be if love were sacrifice. We should be willing to sacrifice for others just as we would for ourselves. But if love means wanting to draw close and heed, then this is also a limiting statement. We listen to our fellow. We are drawn to our fellow. But no more than we should listen to or be drawn to ourselves. Notably in the Chumash, love is not about sacrifice. That is a deeply Christian concept represented by the crucifixion. Christianity draws a parallel with Yakedah. The lamb Yitzchak realizes is missing is Jesus. In this light, one way of reading the crucifixion is that God's love of man trumps the love of his son, and, as the son is the father, his own fears. Read this way, the crucifixion is a reversal of the Yakedah. Love conquers fear. Love of man conquers fear. But in Torah, love and fear of God conquer love of man. The priorities are consistent. Relationships then have a limit. Throughout this reading, we see time and again that our purpose is to use every creative and holy opportunity while limiting and covering our own weakness. When we compare, we banish our weakness. We don't celebrate it and lift it up. Our role, our holy role, trumps our own desires or the desires of others. In these readings, our desires are limited, not that they aren't natural. Most of the relationships end with condemnation because their blood is in them. Blood has been described in these readings as the animating force of our bodies. Those relationships condemned for this reason are being condemned not because they are natural, but because they are natural. They're just associated with lost creative opportunity. Again, love and fear of God trumps our love of ourselves and our love of our fellow. It is interesting that, these situations, that the situations that are not genetically driven are punished even more aggressively. There is no excuse in a way for those actions. There is no drive for them other than depravity. Sleeping with a mother and a daughter is cast into this category. There is another category, siblings. This is called kindness in the Torah, but it is misplaced kindness. It is misplaced love. All of these commandments are put into the context of the separation of the Jewish people when close to God. These commandments aren't normal. They set us apart in this situation. In a way, all these commandments remain under the long shadow of Nadav and Avihu. When we are in the presence of God, fear of God becomes an ever more important and dominating feature of our reality. This goes back to the commandment to offer animals in the Mishkan if we are close to it. With the Mishkan and the presence of God, we have an opportunity to use our lives for the highest of purposes. If we neglect that opportunity, then the repercussions are far greater than they would or even should otherwise be. The reading ends with another reminder to distance our physical selves from unclean animals. Mere association contained us. The final command regards Ov and Yidoni. We don't worship Ov from the root of Father or Yidoni from the root of Knowledge. Instead, again and again, we must remember that we are close to God and that God should be the focus of our relationship. I'm going to add a story this week. It just felt particularly relevant. The story is called The Contraband. You can imagine a generic suburban bar trying to be cool and grungy, right? 
You have the spotless floors done up in some dirty-looking pattern. You have mass-manufactured memorabilia lining the walls. Memorabilia which is identical to that on every other wall in the entire chain. You have the smell of food that isn't really too greasy filling the air. And most importantly, you have the people. They aren't grungy or beat up. They are safely middle class, clean, drug-free, well-fed, and well-dressed. You can imagine that, right? This wasn't that place. I was downtown, but I wasn't in the classy part of downtown. Instead, I was on a stage in the worst bar I'd ever seen. The floors were genuinely dirty, and there were no memorabilia on the walls. The place smelled like a mix of mold, sugary soda, body odor, and urine. It made its money on the cover charge, $3 to get in. The guests were paying for access to the bathrooms. Not just as bathrooms, although that was useful to them. They were really paying for a place to shoot up. You could see it in their eyes as they emerged from the stalls. Tiny pupils revealed the freshly deposited opiates in their bloodstreams. In a unique twist, there wasn't even alcohol on tap. The place had to be well able to welcome all ages. Homeless parents didn't want to leave their kids outside while they did drugs in the bathrooms. They loved their kids. The place had live music. They didn't play the acts much, though. They weren't the point. They were only there so the clientele could shuffle like zombies in the back of the room and the management could pretend they weren't just a clearinghouse for those buying and selling illicit substances. Of course, it was all done with a wink. After all, the place was called the contraband. But they had to keep up the front, so they had music. And that night, the music was me. I was a violinist, of all things. I went to college for it. I graduated with honors. I had perfect technique. I was almost robotic in my capabilities. And I tried to make a career out of it. My parents thought I was ridiculous. I came from one of those firmly middle-class backgrounds. I was supposed to become a professional of some sort, a respectable woman. I certainly wasn't meant to end up in a place like this. But I had ended up here, and the reason was simple. I didn't have a voice. I could play a mean viola, and I could play pretty much any genre, but all I had was technique. I didn't have any soul. And so I graduated from college, and I did everything I could for a gig. I played alternative viola in those middle-class bars. I played country viola. Just think of a deep fiddle in the country. And then I lost those gigs. I didn't fire people's imaginations. And so now, I was playing punk viola, my instruments shouting at the room in places like these. In the classier places, people would talk about my technique. Even here, at the contraband, they come out of their stupor long enough to ask me where I learned to play. But nobody ever said I spoke to them through my music. I was just a touch of light entertainment. A robot could have done what I was doing. That was why I knew when men talked to me that they weren't interested in my music. And when men in a place like this talked to me, they scared me. Not that the contraband was unique in that way. I couldn't trust any of the men I met when I worked. When I was working the middle class bars, the men tended to be married. And here, here they tended to be dangerous. But that night was different. That night I was thrashing my viola and sitting in the back of the room was a skeleton of a man nursing a soda from the skeleton of a dry bar. He was thin, desperately thin. His glasses were way out of fashion. His clothes were cheap, ill-fitting and old. Not like he was poor, but like he didn't care about how others saw him. And he was staring at me. I hadn't noticed him at first. At first, he blended into the crowd, 
But when I did, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. He was enthralled by me, and I was enthralled by him. After the set, he didn't come up to me, and I didn't go to him. And when I finished for the night, he just wasn't there. He'd vanished completely. I asked others about him, but nobody had noticed that he was there. I had another gig in another place a few days later. It was a step up. It was hard to do anything other than step up. But the contraband wanted me too. I was good cover. Punk viola made it look like they were about the music. And I decided there and then to go back. I wanted to see that skeleton of a man. I started my act and then at some point I looked up and he was there again. Staring at me like he had before. He was frightening in his intensity. I knew I should have avoided him. But I couldn't help myself. After my set I walked up to him and I asked him who he was and he just looked at me. I could see something strange in his eyes. There was fear. And there was, could it be, love? He was wrestling with himself, trying to decide what to do, and then he turned to the bar and scribbled something down on a piece of paper. He handed it to me and I took it, and then he got up wordlessly and just walked out. I looked at the paper confused. There were three short lines on it, in address. The creepy skeleton of a man in the bar had given me an address. Any sensible person would probably have burned the thing. They probably would have stopped playing this sort of venue. But I couldn't do that. I stuffed the address in my pocket. I went back to playing. And then over the next few days, I played the encounter through my head again and again. What did the man want? What was he up to? Was he dangerous? I looked up the address. Google Earth revealed the place was a shack surrounded by tall grass and abandoned lots in a part of town that was actually crappier than the contraband itself. It wasn't the sort of place I should visit. It wasn't that I was a middle-class girl. Even a woman in the trade knew better than to go to abandoned buildings to visit strange men who handed them addresses in the backs of places like the contraband. And so, two weeks passed. I played the contraband every chance I got, but he wasn't there. The address burned in my pocket, filling me with questions and a strange sort of yearning I couldn't quite place. I had to see the man again. I had to understand why he had given me that address. And so, one day, I gave in. It was stupid, but I had to see him again, and I had to understand. And so I took the bus to the worst part of town. For some reason, I took my viola with me. When I got off the bus, the streets were basically empty. It was a threatening absence, like attackers could emerge from anywhere at any time. You could smell the grasses and the faint odor of dangerous men who had been here not long before. For that moment, I was grateful for my own poor clothes. Except for the viola, I didn't look like a target. I walked down the street, past derelict buildings and falling houses and empty lots overgrown with glass bottles and grass, and then I came to the address he had given me. It looked abandoned. There was a chain-link fence around it, but somebody had cut some of the links, and there was a shack in the middle of the lot, barely held together and patched with blue plastic tarps. There were no windows. I sucked in a huge breath and shimmied through the fence, crossed the rough ground, and came up to the door of the shack itself. I paused, and then I knocked on the door. It swung open on creeping hinges. It was dark inside. There was no electricity. There was a faint smell of the rotted wood planking that held the place together, and there was a faint blue glow cast by the tarps that covered the shack's poorly joined corners. I should have stopped then. 
but I didn't. I pushed the door all the way open, and I walked inside. It took my eyes a little while to adjust, and then I saw him, the man. He was sitting in the corner on a plastic chair. He looked at me, that combination of fear and love in his eyes, and I looked at him, realizing I somehow felt the same way. And then he began to sing. I don't know how to describe what I heard in that broken-down shack. It was harsh and biting and discordant, but at the same time it was the most intensely beautiful thing I have ever encountered. The walls seemed to echo with the love and mercy and power of that man's voice. I didn't hear any words, just notes, notes that seemed to be piled one on top of the other like unwashed plates after a family meal, or like layers of silt in a running stream, or like books that have been lovingly consumed by a voracious reader. It seemed like I would drift away in that music, by the sadness, by the joy, by the wisdom contained within those notes. But then the man touched my hand, bringing me back, and he kept singing. I watched him, I watched his face. He was illuminated by his wordless song. It seemed like all the world was in that voice. It seemed like you could disappear into the vastness of what he sang. I knew his song was rebuilding me from the inside out. And then he was done. The place was silent. There were just the two of us standing there, looking at one another with something far closer to love than to fear. I wanted to ask why he didn't perform. I wanted to ask why he wasn't on stage, but then he let go of my hand, and I knew the answer. Most people couldn't hear that music and stay themselves. They would drift away, as I almost had. I realized what his fear had been. It was fear that I wouldn't have been able to hear his music. He kept me there with a the touch of his fingertips. Without his touch, I could have vanished, happily erased within the beauty of his voice. We didn't speak, even then, but his music became a part of me. And then I knew why he had brought me there. I left then. We still hadn't exchanged a single snippet of conversation, but we had shared so much more. And so I left. I went back to the contraband, but now my music was different. I had his music inside of me. I played and watched the zombies turn and pull themselves back into reality. I touched them. I touched their souls. When my set ended, they just stood there, eagerly waiting for more. And I got other opportunities then. I played in other places, and I changed people everywhere I went. I thought about making a record or an mp3, but somehow I knew this music wasn't meant for recording. It had to be transmitted person to person. You had to be there to feel it. I played larger and larger venues. I lament, laminated that old headdress and wore it like a necklace, tucked under my blouse. It was a constant reminder of the risk I had taken. Overnight, it seemed like I became a sensation. You couldn't listen to my tunes on the radio or YouTube. You had to come and listen in person. I was the modern artist who did nothing modern. And I knew he was behind my music. And others sensed it as well. He had given me a spirit and I had given him a voice. Everybody knew that I was expressing the soul of another artist. And I was okay with that for a time. I was touching their souls. And every so often I would go back to that shack. And I would listen to the voice of a man I knew better than any other. I became more and more successful. But then somehow 
I began to believe I was responsible for my success. It began to anger me that I was simply channeling his music. I wanted my own voice. I wanted to get out from under the thumb of the skeleton of a man. And so, almost as if I was rebelling against his rule, I shut out his music. I tried to find my own voice, borrowing from the genres that surrounded me. I went back to punk viola and the rock viola and the pop viola. But everything fell apart. My music had no life. As hard as I tried, it had no soul. People left my shows disappointed, and then I climbed back down the ladder of success. I realized my mistake, of course, but it was too late. When I tried to play his music once again, it was gone. There was a void where his love had once been. I even went back to the shack again and again, but it was always empty. It seemed like nobody had ever been living there. I was cursed again, playing the contraband. Drug addicts asked me where I learned my technique but nobody was touched by what my music had to say. And then one evening in that drug-infested venue, I had a revelation. It wasn't that I suddenly realized my music had no soul. I'd known that before. And it wasn't that I suddenly realized that my music offered no chance to success or fame. I'd already figured that out. No, I knew in that instant that my music was destined to vanish. I played it, and it disappeared almost as soon as the notes left my bow. It was like I was playing a melody, and it was consumed by a waiting void. I wanted to cry then. I knew there was another path. The man's voice might not have been mine alone, but it was a voice I was meant to have. The music he gave me flew off my bow, resonating through the deep cavities of my viola, and seemed to fill the space around me. His notes seemed to stay within those who heard them, a timeless after-effect that gave meaning to my life and to the lives of those who heard me. His was the music of eternity, and he had chosen me to play it. And in that instance, I felt his music once again, and I began to play his music once again, and I was filled with joy at the opportunity. It wasn't about fame or money. It was about giving reality to something far greater than I could ever be. I played that music. I closed my eyes and I imagined myself back in that shack. I heard his voice within me and I shared it with the world around me. And the zombies stopped and pulled themselves back into reality. And I kept playing, imagining the music spinning out far beyond the walls of the contraband. I imagined it touching the bums in the street, the police in their cars, the suburbanites in their suburban houses, and the couples gazing out over the slowly moving river downtown. I imagined that music filling the world, and I imagined the beauty it could bring. Then I opened my eyes, and he was there, just like the first time. He was watching me from the dry bar. His eyes were full of forgiveness, and his eyes were full of love. There was no fear. And I felt the tears streaming from my eyes, tears of joy and tears of longing and tears of regret, as I remembered what I had abandoned in the service of my pride. I knew then that he was my soul and I was his voice, and I kept playing the laminated address resting underneath my blouse. I knew I had to keep playing. I knew I had to bring his music to the world. I watched the skeleton of a man smile, and I wondered, just for a moment, if he was really there. 
Thank you for listening. Shabbat Shalom.